This podcast is brought to you by the College of Nursing at Brigham Young University. For more information about its programs, faculty, students, or alumni events, please visit nursing.byu.edu. When disaster strikes, many good people try to rush to the aid of those impacted. But does that flooding of resources actually help those suffering, or does this help do more harm than good? Today we'll discuss practical but not so obvious do's and don'ts when giving humanitarian aid and support to those affected by disaster. Hey everyone, I'm Eliza Joy. And I'm Ryan Larson. Together we will explore nursing careers and professional insights. With exclusive interviews for nurses working jobs that you want to know about. Transferring info from one nurse to another. This is the College Handoff. After Hurricane Katrina in August 2005, U.S. donors hoping to help those affected wrote checks totaling $4.2 billion. In addition, thousands more donated or attempted to donate time, personal items, and services. However, there's a lot of confusion and miscommunication following disasters, and creating clever ways to distribute the right kinds of aid effectively can be challenging. Today, we will discuss humanitarian service with nursing alumna and learn tips for when you want to assist. Let's get started. Well, our next guest today is Nikki Broby. She is a BYU College nursing alumni and also has some amazing stories about responding to emergencies. We've actually written about her on our blog in the past as she uh, served and worked on the Mercy uh, hospital ship that has traveled to different parts of the country and responded to various types of emergencies. So we're very excited to talk to her today. Nikki, welcome to our show. Thank you so much. Well, Nikki, I want to start off by just talking about your background a little bit. I'm looking at your LinkedIn profile, and it's very clear that on the surface level, it looks like you've always wanted to be a nurse. I mean, you studied that um, even before you went and got a master's degree from BYU. What, what started you on the process of potentially looking into the nursing field? Uh, you know what? It's actually kind of funny. I never thought about becoming a nurse mm. when I was a kid. Um, nobody in my family of over a hundred people is really in the medical field aside from a dentist and psychologist, I think. And, um, I was attending BYU as an undergrad and I was in their animal science program. And, um, I went on a mission to Washington DC that was Spanish speaking. And this will tell you how old I am, but, um, I was in DC during nine 11. Oh, wow. Um, for a while we, weren't allowed to go out and proselyte. And so we ended up volunteering at the Red Cross and kind of helping out after that. And I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but I think it really made me realize that one of my biggest fears is that somebody needs help of some kind and I don't know how to give it. And uh, one day I was tracting in the ghettos of DC and um, I had a very clear impression that I should become a nurse. And I kind of argued with God about that for a little bit and he won. So, um, I always say it's the best decision I didn't make. <laughs> wow. That's so special. What a, what a cool, um, experience and a way to kind of get, uh, your calling in life in a, in a spiritual sense. That's really interesting. Thanks for sharing with us. Yeah. So, so after you, you get this, 
impression that you should become a nurse. Um, you go back to BYU, I'm assuming then, and uh, did you go through BYU or how did you get your nursing certificates? Yeah, uh, good question. So I actually, I went back to BYU and, um, you know, had to change my major and I was there for about a semester and due to um, some different situations as well as some kind of more personal inspiration, I ended up at ASU. So most people go from ASU to BYU. I went from BYU to ASU. <laughs> so the uh, Stone Cold number one Stone Cold Drive <laughs> School in the nation to the number one party school in the nation. <laughs> How fun. Um, I'm from Arizona. All my family was there. Mm. And I also, I had a great experience at both schools. Um, so I did graduate from ASU and started my nursing career in, in downtown Phoenix in a uh, children's ICU. And um, yeah, uh, but I, I had a great experience at BYU. So it wasn't hard for me to think about going back there for graduate school. Yeah. And then I want to backtrack just half a second. You did mention that um, when you did you, not a study abroad. Um, when you're doing the volunteer experience, I think it was, and you said that you were on a ship. Um, yeah. Was that was that the, the the Mercy ship? I know that we we did an interview with you on our blog a while back, and you were working on the the Mercy hospital ship that the U.S. government uses to kind of deploy out to countries when they have like a natural disaster, or when just another country's or even our own country's hospital resources are kind of pushed to the extreme. It's another. Uh, form of portable care that that can be used is that the ship that you were working with then or exactly yes a lot of people saw it for a stent at the beginning of covid when it showed up at new york but it turns out a ship is not probably the greatest place to have uh <laughs> uh be taking care of patients during a pandemic because everything on a ship spreads really fast mm. so um however the ships have done and incredible things in the past. So the the Navy has two hospital ships. Um, one is the USNS Comfort, and it's on the East Coast and goes down to Central and South America and the Caribbean generally every other year um, on odd years. And then they have the USNS Mercy on the West Coast. Um, it's in San Diego, and it goes to um, mostly to Asia. Um, on the even years. And so, um, and they have a lot of purposes for going. In fact, the USNS Comfort has a mission statement, I guess is what you would call it, that it is uh, prepare and calm to respond in crisis. Wow. And that's turned into like a personal mission statement, I guess. Um, I really love it. And so they go down during hurricane season on purpose. Um, it, it's a huge, it used to be an oil tanker converted into a hospital ship. It's 10 stories high, has 13 ORs. It has a CAT scan. It has a 50 bed ER. I mean, it's huge. It's own blood wow. bank pharmacy. Technically it's a thousand bed hospital, but I think it really gets kind of fairly maxed out around 200, um, which is still a pretty decent sized hospital. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, they go down during hurricane season on purpose, fully staffed, so they're ready to help if something happens. Um, in the meantime, if nothing happens, then they just treat patients in every country. They usually try to go to places that are hard to get to. We treated over 100,000 patients in five months, going to nine different countries. Wow. And, um, and you know, you have some time 
where you're just sailing in between countries. We went through the Panama Canal a couple of times. Um, I think the most we had was six days where we were just sailing and not really anywhere. And so we do a lot of stuff during those times, including mass casualty drill training. So um, I was able to help train like um, corpsmen in the Navy and stuff um, to, to prepare them. I went through a lot of their trainings as well. They had they were training to go to um, Afghanistan at the time. So, so yeah, about 10% of the ship is nonprofit organizations. And I went as a volunteer, a medical volunteer for uh, Latter-day Saint Charities. Wow. What did you experience? Was it through um, LDS Charities that you kind of got that volunteer position? I mean, I'm sure they don't just let anyone um, participate in that. That's really interesting. So the church... Um, was working together with the Navy and yeah, I, I just, um, interviewed for the position. It helped that I speak Spanish, um, and that I was available for the full five months, um, because, you know, it's more efficient to have somebody go for the full five months than retrain somebody every two to three weeks. Um, so I was fortunate enough to be chosen to go. I think that year there were 10 or 11 of us that stayed for the full five months, but there was close to 90 of us that that volunteered all together on the ship as um, Latter-day Saint Charity volunteers. Clear to me that you have a lot of mass casualty type experience. Um, I know that you have a blog, we'll put a link to it um, in the, the podcast description. But you talk about just some of the, the techniques that you've kind of learned through your years of experience of responding to um, emergencies. I guess, why did you start that blog? Why do you think that people should know about appropriate ways and do's and don'ts of responding to um, just large scale mass casualty incidents? Yeah. Um, so actually, I have a, a friend who she's got the blog and it's called The Research Says and she's, I mean, it's obviously it is what it says. It's very research-based. Mm-hmm. And she asked me to kind of consolidate what I learned in my thesis uh, work. So I have a passion for emergency response. I even did a two and a half year part-time mission while I was working in the ER at the University of Utah. I did a part-time mission in the emergency response department of the church. Mm. And um and I only quit that to go back to school, honestly. So um, when I decided to do my thesis, um, we were looking at like, hey, there's kind of a dearth of information for anybody who says, I want to, to start my own disaster response team. How do I even go about that? What makes that successful? You know, kind of there's, there's so much to it and it can be overwhelming. And so there are principles of success that we found when working on on this thesis. And the first principle of of success is to assess the need. So a lot of people try to fit what they do into a disaster. Like, oh, we give out teddy bears. So we're going to figure out a way to get these people teddy bears. So there's an earthquake in Haiti and we're going to send teddy bears. And what they really need is medical help. And so what those teddy bears do is they they sit on the tarmac and get in the way of planes who are trying to land with medical supplies. And it's sad because 
everybody who donates something to a cause is doing it for the right reasons, but there is a way to do it effectively. Mm. And that's what we were looking at, right? And so first you have to assess the need and you're going to figure out the need better if you're talking to people on the ground, if your response starts local. And there's that's a shift in humanitarian work that I think is great that has happened over the last few years and is continuing to happen is that the you need to start at a local level so you really know what they need rather than trying to fit what you do into that. The second principle of effective response is, you know, effectively responding to something you have to keep in mind cultural needs. It's very it's it's not culturally acceptable in some situations for a male OBGYN to take care of a female. And so there's a huge need for female OBs these that had a lot of um, Muslim women. So that's just like one example. Another thing was um, is because a lot of uh, women couldn't necessarily go over where there was a group of men, um, they often couldn't get in to have their phone charged at these phone charging stations. Um, there were a lot of single women with kids and we take for granted that if we need to use the restroom in the middle of the night, we just get up, turn on the light and go in and use the restroom. When you're in a refugee camp situation, unfortunately, in many situations, it's, it's actually dangerous to get up and go to the restroom in the middle of the night. And you realize like, man, they really need more lights around their bathrooms. Like that mm. sounds simple, but it's huge, right? Yeah. Um, having septic tanks that work is huge. Having we went into a hospital in one of the um, uh, main camps in Jordan and their entire pediatric unit was empty. And when I asked them why they said they didn't have the resources to staff it. And the hospital administrator said, if there was one thing he could change, it would be that they could open up that pediatric unit. And when I asked him why he said, because let's say you have a mom with seven kids and lots of times the husband is dead or working or fighting or whatever, but not there. And <clears throat> she has a child who has a medical need, a serious medical need, and so has to be transferred to like Amman or something, has to be transferred to the main city. And she's now in a situation where she has to decide, do I go with my sick child to the hospital and leave my other six children to fend for themselves in this camp? Or do I stay with my six children and let my sick child go alone? Like heartbreaking situation. Wow. I like wanted to sign up to work in that pediatric unit on the spot, right? Like if I was Bill Gates, that's where my check would have been written, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but I wouldn't have ever known that if I didn't talk to the people there, if I didn't talk to the people involved. And so Finding out the true need is the first principle of most effectively responding to a disaster. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, that definitely makes sense. Um, I feel like there's such an adrenaline rush to get involved and to help out. Like, how do you know and how do you go about finding out what are the resources that are actually needed? Um, and who do you talk to to find out about that information? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, obviously I work in the medical field. But no matter what field you work in, you can find those things out. So there are so many organizations out there 
it's unlikely that you even need to start your own organization. Right. Look out there, look at what the mission statement is. There are organizations, all they do is evaluate NGOs <laughs> to see like, hey, how responsible are they being with their money? How effective are they? And that sort of thing. They, they grade them. Um, so you can look at those. Um, and there's a lot of things that play a part. Um, maybe you have to go for at least two months and that might not work for you. So you need some kind of organization that only makes you go for a week or whatever. Um, so there are a lot of things that play a role, but it doesn't really matter what you do. Maybe you're in construction. There's going to be people who need that. Um, so really we have the benefit of Google, Yeah. <laughs> you know, and so you can get on there and look. And it, like I said, there may be times where the best thing is to sit back and donate to somebody who is is more qualified maybe than you are to do something about it. And sometimes it's going to be making a phone call and saying, hey, listen, I'm really qualified for this, or I see that you need this and I can help. And so it's it, it may change. Um, lots of times we don't have to go further than our own neighborhood to to be responding to something right um but when we want to uh there's we just have to start somewhere and trust me when you go on your first humanitarian trip or disaster response you're going to start forming an opinion really quick (laughs) about what's effective and what's not and what you want to be doing and what you don't want to be doing and that that is really it's important to kind of know yourself because that is the the third principle to effectiveness is is quality volunteers and honestly some many people just in the reality of a situation aren't necessarily the best people to go somewhere and not be able to shower for a while or have running water and be in a place where there's a lot of disease and a lot of smells and a lot of whatever it might be um you know not everybody's cut out for that you know and then some people thrive on that um you know you also want to make sure that you're going to be safe that you're not going to end up adding to the disaster because you become a casualty yourself right you know so um it doesn't matter what you do there's a place for you in fact another i think good example of that is i was speaking to professor nunez the other day carolina nunez or actually it might be carolina but uh, I think she goes by Carolina. She's a wonderful lady, works over at the law school. And um, she would take students down to the, the border to help um, asylum seekers um, with paperwork and stuff um, with the legal aspects of, of seeking asylum. That's a situation where, you know, a professor uh, found a need and then try to figure out how do we effectively respond to this need. And it does mean being flexible because the situation on the border, as we know, changes depending on a lot of things, including who's president. And so there's needed to be some flexibility there. And so I think she's in a situation again where she's trying to say, okay, what's the real need? And instead of just trying to fit what we do in somewhere where it doesn't really fit, where are we really needed and how do we best respond to that need? And and that's really the mentality that everybody needs to have, right? Is being flexible, 
not just having the experience and being capable, but being flexible and humble enough to say, are, how do we best respond to this? And do we even respond to this? It must take a lot of humility to be able to kind of filter your actions by that. I mean, I know a lot of our listeners, they come from, you know, an LDS background, they're nursing professionals, you know, they have just like a desire to care for other people um, in one medium or another. And from what you're describing, it sounds like you kind of have to put a filter up and decide, okay, I want to help. I see there's a need here, but perhaps the biggest thing is, am I the most qualified person to actually be doing something about it? And I feel like it might be kind of difficult sometimes to be able to say, you know, I'm not cut out for this. And maybe there's someone who's better than me at, at doing this. That's a good thing to be mindful of as you're approaching situations where you could potentially be helpful is thinking about um, what you can do versus what other people can do. So I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. What are some things that maybe like nursing students in particular at BYU who are more than likely going to be in some type of either, you know, ER position or volunteer humanitarian aid position in the future? You know, they might have like a nursing degree, but what are some things that they can do to make sure that they appear and are quality volunteers when they're applying for these types of positions in one way or another? Yeah, great question. So I think we're back to the uh, USNS comfort mission statement, prepare and calm to respond in crisis. So, um, so I think do everything you can to continue to learn and progress in what you do. This might, it might mean, you know, getting your ACLS and PALS certifications, um, as a nursing student, um, start paying attention to organizations and who responds to what and how they respond and, and getting a feel for what it is that you like to do. So if there's an earthquake and you're a labor and delivery nurse, you may not be the best to respond to a certain type of disaster. But there are neonatal resuscitation programs and helping babies breathe programs and stuff that maybe you will be more qualified for. So you know, figure out what your passion is and get really good at it because there are two things that stood out in our research that made volunteers successful and made organizations want them to come back. And one is that they have experience, that you're just good at what you do, right? You don't have to be good at everything. Be good at what you do, what your passion is, because there will be a time when that's needed. And it might not be every time but there will be a time when it's needed and then be flexible, right? I mean, if that's something that COVID has taught us all to be, whether we like it or not, yeah. <laughs> but um, volunteers who are flexible are often the, the ones who are invited back because things never go as planned <laughs> and there, you have to have some ingenuity and, you have to maintain a good attitude when, when all around you, you know, there's diff people having difficulties and um, there's nothing worse than being around people who have a bad attitude. Right. And um, it can be really helpful when somebody, even if they're not the best at what they do, like keep the team spirit up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so 
But I think, you know, having that good attitude, remaining flexible, it might mean like, you know, I went onto the ship and I did children's ICU and they asked me to do the ER and I could have been like, I don't do that. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was like, all right, cool. A little out of my comfort zone, but this is where I'm needed, you know, and some days I was needed more as a translator than as a nurse. And I was like, okay, today I needed as a translator. I will do that today. Some evenings, the pharmacy needed help counting pills. Like you can't be above any job. Yeah. You know, if, if you're going to respond, you just need to be like, okay, you know what? I have time and energy right now. Where am I needed? Like that constant reevaluation of the need. It's not just, it doesn't happen one time. It happens daily. It sometimes happens from hour to hour um, on a community level, a national level, a personal level. You always need to be rethinking, okay, where's the need and how can I most effectively respond to this need? Uh one of my favorite scriptures in Doctrine and Covenants at section six, I don't know, up in the top right corner or whatever, you know, but it says, if you desire, you shall be the means of doing much good in this generation. And there are so few people in a situation where they have the skills, they have the desire, and they have the ability, um, you know, the time, the money, whatever, the health, whatever it might be to actually help god's not going to just let that go to waste you you'll be put to work and then eventually you'll be wishing that you had a little bit of a break (laughs) so (laughs) so don't fret (laughs) how in your in your mind and from your experience how would you recommend choosing what to get good at and how would you recommend choosing um what types of things to specialize in because your life is only so long and i wish you could specialize in everything but what do you do to how do you go about that in your life? What do you think? Yeah, no, I'm really glad you asked because I have had a lot of students in my career um, with a similar question. And it's one of the great things about school is that you get to try out a lot of different areas and see what you like and what you don't like. And sometimes the problem is you like too many things <laughs> or you don't like too many things, I guess. But usually I think you are you like too many things. Um, it's true. In nursing, you can do anything. And that's one of the great things about nursing. You could be a personal nurse on a yacht or you could go to a cruise (laughs) ship, right? You could be a school nurse. You could work in the hospital. You can work with legal, um, you know, the legal aspect of medicine. You can travel, uh, be a travel nurse. There's so many things that you can do. I always tell my students because lots of times students get into their first job and unfortunately don't have a good experience. And what they do is they think, I'm not supposed to be a nurse. And that's not true. It just means that's not their tribe, right? That that's not what, that's not their area, or maybe that's not their people. Maybe they need to stay in that that field, but change hospitals. Like, But just because maybe you go into the ER, let's say, and you get there and you realize you're like depressed and you're not enjoying your job, that doesn't mean you're not meant to be a nurse. That means that you're maybe not meant to work in the ER. And if you go work somewhere else, you might find you really love your job. So don't give up on nursing so quickly just because maybe you have a bad experience. And, um, and you know, if, if the opposite is true and you're just loving everything, then 
don't worry that you might love something else too. Just get good at where you're at. That's that's okay. It's like, I mean, that's how it is with, um, I remember asking Elder Bednar one time at a fireside, like, how do we choose um, like where to put our efforts? There's so many options out there. That's basically what you're saying, right? And he he kind of said, just choose something. Like, yeah, there are, like, don't be paralyzed by the worry that you're not choosing exactly the right thing. Just choose something good and go in that direction. And really, I can I can say from personal experience, you will be guided along that path. If you're if if you're an animal science major and that's not where you're supposed to be, then you will be directed towards nursing. And if you're um, working in an ER as a nurse and doing a part-time mission in emergency response, the Lord is going to direct you when it's time to become a nurse practitioner. Like those are my personal experiences, right? But because of them, I can say other nurses, but also just people who want to do good in whatever situation they are, you'll be guided towards that. But just don't give up if you if you run into some roadblocks along the way. Those are going to be there and be especially when your potential to do good is so high, you are going to have opposition. Expect that and don't be discouraged. Just keep finding out where it is that, that God wants you, where you belong and, and where you're happy. I love that. That's, that is good advice. I think that's, that's really important. And I'm not even a nursing student, but I'm going to be applying that in my major. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. Well, Nikki, well, thank you so much. Really appreciated the time you took out of your day to spend talking with us. This was this was amazing. This was great. Really good advice. Um, I think that's something that um, everything you've shared is something that kind of hits home in the crosshairs of helping other people, doing good better, and caring for people in the way that the Savior would and, and practicing the healers are. So I really appreciate the thoughts you've shared. Sure. My pleasure. The BYU College of Nursing recently added diversity, equity, and belonging as one of its nine values. As such, a new animated video series was released to showcase the core commitments. Each brief clip contains a definition of the value, a scripture verse to support it, and an example of it in action from a faculty member or nursing student. To view the videos, visit our channel at youtube.com forward slash BYU Nursing. All right, so today in studio, we have Sarah Jensen, who is the Service Project Coordinator for the Nurses Empowering Women Club. So welcome to the show. Thanks. Can you tell me a little bit about how the club was founded and when that was? So the club was founded in 2019, I believe, and there was a group of three nursing students who went on a study abroad focused about women's rights and and they came away from that experience with a really deep love for women's studies. And they wanted to find a way to kind of bridge the gap between like the women's studies program and the nursing program um, and to kind of combine those two interests into one format. And so they started organizing the club and it's just taken off from there. Can you tell me a little bit about what the Nurses Empowering Women Club does and what it's for? So the club was created to try and help nurses in our program to be able to care for individuals that may not always receive the best care. And so specifically to care for women, to treat women, but other 
groups beyond that as well. Really, it's to try and um, to empower the nurses in our program to be able to adequately and comfortably care for anyone who walks in the door and to be able to do so in the best way to best treat them, to best care for them, to best help them come out of the hospital prepared and happy and healthy. Can I ask, um, what are some health issues that women specifically have that you guys have talked about in the past? So some things we've talked about in the past, um, we have talked about globally issues that affect women like maternal health and um, like maternal death rates in different countries because of complications due to pregnancy or delivery. We've talked about uh, education for women in different parts of the world and um, how that's affecting healthcare outcomes and health literacy and things like that, even in our own country. And I think with a lot of these issues, it is bigger than just the problems that they're facing healthcare wise, if that makes sense. So like the, the basics of the issue are sometimes women aren't a part of studies being done to treat different illnesses or things like that. And so whatever treatments are being um, invented or done aren't geared towards women as they are as much towards men, if that makes sense. So little things like that end up having a big impact on the healthcare that women receive or things like how they're treated in hospitals. Um, we've talked about before how sometimes complaints of pain are treated differently when women are giving them than when men are giving them, which can have a big impact on the health care that they receive if they're not taken seriously, you know? So is the assumption that women have a lower pain threshold? Yeah. Or that like if they come in to receive um, like with abdominal pain, it's just like related to menstruation or things like that. They have a lower pain threshold. They're not taken as seriously. So what are some things that your club does to help educate its members and also um, serve the community? I think the biggest thing that we do to try and educate people is to bring in experts so to say, um, we invite a lot of faculty to come in and share with us what specific things they've studied and they've seen. Um, and so we can learn from them and get more specifics into like different healthcare problems and issues. And then helping the community, we do try and do a service project at least once a semester. Um, so that way we can be actively doing something to participate in overcoming some of those challenges. Um, this semester, we we're able to do like we did a joined days for girls project with a couple of the other colleges in the area. Um, in case you're not aware, days for girls helps provide um, menstruation supplies for girls in developing countries. So they have packets with reusable pads and underwear and things like that. So these girls can still continue to receive an education even when they start their periods, which is very helpful for these girls and really life changing. Yeah, that's very, very crucial. So who is allowed to join the club? Anyone's allowed to join the club. Um, I think most of the students are in the nursing program, but there's several students who are in public health programs or things like that who are interested in the things we talk about and learn about in the club. And 
Um, it's pretty closely connected to the global women's studies minor as well, but you don't have to be in the minor to join the club or anything like that. Anyone's welcome to come. So if someone is interested in learning more about the club, do you guys have a social media where they can um, access that information? Yes, we do. We have an Instagram page. The handle is just nurses empowering women, just no spaces or anything. Um, and we post about our activities on there and different things that are going on in the club pretty frequently. Are there any requirements for someone who wants to join the club? There are no requirements beyond just signing up on BYU's website if you want to officially join the club. There's no cost or mandatory meeting attendance or anything like that. And if someone wanted to get involved, um, when do you guys meet? We usually meet the third Tuesday of the month at 5 o'clock in 490 in the Kimball building. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sarah, for coming to the show today. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Eliza, for showing us and talking to us a little bit about that new club. I think that's something super important, especially as women issues are coming into the light more and more in our society and our culture. I think this club's going to be a great way for nurses to find effective ways that they can really help women get the resources and the tools that they need to have healthy and happy lives. Yeah, it was definitely a really insightful interview. And I really appreciated your interview with Nikki. Um, I know that even with the best intentions, it's easy to make missteps when you're trying to help others. And I walked away from that learning that it's important to be more intentional with the service that I give people. Oh, I love that principle that you mentioned, Eliza. And I think Nikki's a really good example of someone who lives by those principles as well. Uh, she's been, as she mentioned, most of her um, life volunteering in different capacities and serving in the church in medical ways. And it's super cool to see that there are people out there who are not only trying to make a difference, but they're trying to make a difference in the most effective way possible. Well, that's all we have for you guys today. Don't forget to tune in next week. You can find us anywhere you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you all next week. Bye.